Your Locked On Golden Knights, your daily podcast on the Vegas Golden Knights, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On Golden Knights. Pete DeBoer says that he was rattled by his firing by VGK. Hi again, everyone. I'm Tony Cardasco along with Chris Golick. You could find us at Locked On VGK on Twitter and on YouTube. And you could find myself at Tony Dasco. And he is TD Chris G on Twitter as well. Thanks for making Locked On Golden Knights your first listen each and every day. It's free and available wherever you get your podcasts. And Chris, Pete DeBoer yesterday introduced as the Dallas Stars' new head coach. He told the media that he was rattled by his firing in Vegas because he really thought as a coaching staff that they were working hard, as hard as they could. And with the situation that was handed to them by uh, VGK this year, he thought that they should have been given an extra year. Isn't it too late now to continue to make excuses about injuries, everything else? Uh, maybe it makes him feel better, I'm sure. Um, but right there at the end of the season, VGK was a team that faltered. Uh, they were a team that was right there, right on the doorstep to make the playoffs. And they controlled their destiny at the end of the year. All injuries aside, I think it's a good time for him to move on. And I was uh, mistaken the other day by saying that uh, DeBoer received an $800,000 a year uh, boost there in his salary. I think it's more like a million. All, all interesting, all fair. Um, this, the salary, I mean, he's with so many teams needing coaches and DeBoer does have a decent resume. I mean, you can't, you know, hold that against him. He does have some success on paper for being able to uh, take teams into the playoffs. As far as um, excuses and him being rattled, I mean, I'm buying the sense that DeBoer feels him and his staff did everything they felt they could do given the circumstances. Uh, back to George McPhee, it's not an excuse, but it was fact that they missed 500 plus man games due to injury. It's a fair statement. It's a statement that you cannot use against DeBoer. Now, you go a couple layers deep. BGK was in the running for a playoff spot all the way until basically really until game number 81. They were still mathematically alive. As of game 77, 78, they controlled their own destiny. So, sure, I will put that specifically on the coaching staff for not being able to find a way to win at home against the Sharks <laughs> in when the team was very healthy and no disrespect to Keegan Colasar, but Keegan Colasar goes down that game and that uh, threw the lines off a little bit, but Keegan Colasar getting injured is not the reason that they lost that game. You know, that will fall on the coaching staff for not having the team ready to go. So sure. DeBoer is rattled. He thought he did a, a, a good job, but I think he did a good job given the circumstances and everything. Was it a good enough job? Obviously not, or he would still be the coach. I mean, honestly, I, I think if they go one and done in the playoffs, I think DeBoer is out as well. I think um, there was a lot of quality coaches on the market. I do wonder if they kind of, they being VGK, of course, if they had any type of 
inkling that Cassidy was going to become available, then it goes back to maybe the team wanting that new direction and uh, all those, uh, you know, cliche quotes as uh, the locker cleanout day happens and you start getting some clues as to what direction, not just the Vegas Golden Knights, but what all the teams are going to do going into next season. We saw how bad they were on the power play and on the shootout. And to me, the biggest knock against Pete DeBoer. And again, I thought DeBoer at midseason was the NHL coach of the year for everything that he did. Uh, This team was in first place at some point. But this system, something has to change in Dallas with the system because I still do not believe that Pete DeBoer and his staff will be able to win consistently, go deep into the playoffs with a system that is so easy to read. I'm just wondering if he will make any changes to his antiquated system in Dallas. Otherwise, I don't care who the talent is on the ice. They just won't win. So a a couple of quotes that uh, came out of Pete DeBoer's introductory uh, press conference. This is from uh, Jim Nill, the general manager. Pete brings a wealth of experience to our dressing room. We're thrilled to have We're thrilled to name him our next head coach. Every team that he has taken over has not only shown immediate improvements, but been ultra competitive in the Stanley Cup playoffs. His resume displays the high standards he sets and his ability to get the team to play up to that level consistently. We'll deal. We'll we'll dive into that in a second. And then the second one here that kind of got me. I don't think it's a secret, DeBoer said. We want to unlock some of the offensive game to this group, being the Dallas Stars. What can we do better uh, style of play-wise in order to be better? The second thing is individually, what individual players can we get more out of and what's the plan to do that? Hmm. Okay, I mean, that's a, that's a question but he, he probably needs to answer. So, yes, Pete DeBoer has gone deep immediately taking over teams. Uh, starting with uh, New Jersey, season number one, they go with Pete DeBoer. This is uh, they go to the Stanley Cup final. San Jose Sharks, season number one with DeBoer, Stanley Cup final. Uh, Vegas Golden Knights, season number one, Western Conference final. So sure, it's a fair statement that teams go deep early with Pete DeBoer. Um, <laughs> is that because uh, he's coming in from a system that maybe wasn't uh, as broken as the, as, as thoughts. And uh, the team is just basically, you know, going back to when he took over the golden Knights, that was Gallant's team. That was the team that was created for George Gallant, George Gallant style. I don't know how much DeBoer could have possibly influenced change um, in his short time in season number three. So is Pete DeBoer simply just, you know, doing well because he's getting the scraps of what uh, what he came into? Is he doing something? I mean, DeBoer is not a bad coach. I'm not going to sit here and bash DeBoer by any means. That's not the point of uh, where I'm going with this here. But, you know, he's saying the same things as he goes into Dallas that Vegas is left scratching their heads about that I don't think he did during his time in Vegas. And I wonder how much uh, Pete's grown. I, this um, Dallas Stars roster, they got a lot of talents as far as the offense goes. Not It's not as potent as a healthy VGK roster, but they don't have nearly the level of defense that the Golden Knights have. Uh, Jake Ottinger is, you know, their up-and-coming netminder who should be the starter. Um, I think that was actually addressed as well. We can save that for a couple minutes here. But um, 
you know, let, let's see what uh, DeBoer has up his sleeve because he's going to have to unlock more offensive talents, more creativity, whatever the identity is going to be, while, you know, all these things he couldn't do in Vegas. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, he goes from a team that missed all those man games to a team that I would have to say, I'd venture a guess and say, was the most healthy in the National Hockey League. And so he really wouldn't have any excuses to make uh, this upcoming season if they have players uh, like Pavelski that played 82 games this past year. It's insane, like the number yeah. of players. We, we counted, right, that played over 70, 75 games. Yes, even. I remember that. Yeah, for, for uh, the Dallas Stars. And so he won't, he's going to run out of uh, excuses. But uh, you talked about Jake Ottinger, uh, one of the best uh, young goalies, I believe, in the National Hockey League. And uh, what quotes do you have on the situation with Ottinger? And there's a player that, you know, has a high ceiling. Yeah, so um, this is what DeBoer said at, at his presser. Like all young goalies, you've got to temper that. We saw what he did in the playoffs, DeBoer said. Um, and also, uh, Ottinger played with Pete DeBoer's son. So there's some type of connection there. But it's following it up next year. And our responsibility as coaches and as a team is to make sure we keep that foundation and structure around him. So that sounds like a vote of confidence, while it's also a calculated comment in the sense that, you know, hey, kid, good job. Now we got to step it up. But it also sounds like they are you know, building around in, in a not so roundabout way, DeBoer just basically uh, said Ottinger is going to be the man, at least uh, going into camp and everything. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with them, um, <clears throat> with the veterans that are around him. And we've seen firsthand DeBoer's handling of goalies and whether the, the, the flurry situation is entirely on uh, DeBoer, I, I think we can, uh, you know, pull back a little bit there. I think that was much more McCrimmon and McPhee's doing than, than Pete DeBoer's doing, but Pete DeBoer does have on his resume, you know, goaltending drama. And even going way back, I dug up an article. I was going up back with Daniel Negreanu on Twitter probably a month and a half ago. Um, DeBoer actually pulled Bro- Martin Brodeur once during that playoff run where they went to the Stanley Cup final, um, going back to the uh, late 2000s, I want to say. And uh, that did not sit well with Brodeur. I know it's one thing, but, you know, you're pulling Martin Brodeur out of the game. I mean, you look at what happened to Vasilevsky in uh, game number two. He didn't get pulled. So you just kind of wonder DeBoer's relationships with goalies and how that's going to go as he continues his career in Dallas. Remember uh, that one quote uh, by DeBoer when he talked about Leonard? Like, look at my track record. I never pull a goaltender well. There you That's go. right. Yeah, it was like four times over the season. Four times like over that. the season is exactly what he said. Uh, coming up next, we will talk about Daniil Marimanov signing a new two-year extension with the Vegas Golden Knights. You're listening to Locked On Golden Knights. You know how our friends at Built are always coming up with some new amazing flavors? Well, this time, Built has truly outdone themselves with their new mud pie flavor. And for the first time ever... Built is introducing the new but mud pie flavor in both mud pie bar and mud pie puff. Not sure what mud pie tastes like? Well, Chris can give you the lowdown there. It is rich with what whipped cream, chocolate mousse, smothered in 100% real chocolate, and topped with cookies and cream crumble. You can attest. Yeah, no doubt. It's um like eating a healthier version of that other cookie 
that uh, usually has the two uh, black cookie pieces and that white piece in the middle, but much healthier and filling and uh, helps give you a little boost as well. Yeah. Hopefully they'll send us more freebies too. Yeah. I just finished the other box. So I'm, I'm, yeah, come on, Bill, let's go. (laughs) What's great about Bill is that all of their bars are made with collagen protein, which your body, your body does absorb more efficiently, provides tons of health benefits. Eat something that tastes good and is good for you. Go to built.com and order your box of mud pie bars and puffs right now. You will not regret it. Go to built.com. You can use the promo code lock 15, get 15% off your order. Use the promo code lock 15 for 15% off at built.com. Welcome back to Locked On Golden Knights, Tony Cardasco and Chris Golick from Las Vegas. And thanks for making Locked On Golden Knights your first listen every day. It is free and available wherever you get your podcast. And uh, Chris, VGK signing defenseman Danil Maramanov, a new two-year contract extension this week. It's worth about $762,000 plus per year. Maramanov appeared in 11 games with the VGK last season. He played in 53 games with AHL Henderson. He had his NHL debut with the Island in the Islanders game back in October with VGK. And he led the Silver Knights defenseman with 40 points, including 11 goals this past season. He's a fan favorite, uh, especially on the minor league level. Is this a player that can contribute in Bruce Cassidy's system in the future on the NHL level? So just looking back also uh, right before um... 2020-21, he was actually in, in the KHL. So maybe this is our our uh, our KHL um, player that's going to finally do something here. <laughs> right. I just, I'm just looking at that right now. So, I mean, you definitely look at his how he's increased. So six only six games at the AHL level in 2021 doesn't get a single point. Just you know, a couple penalty minutes, nothing too crazy there. And then last season was definitely a coming out party for him, uh, starting at the Henderson level, 11 goals, 29 assists, uh, plus 11 on a team that was not very good defensively. Uh, Even Logan Thompson, while he was down there, didn't do as well. Nothing on Logan Thompson, but just simply Henderson was a revolving door because of all the situations, uh, all the injury compromises. There's our word again, all the compromises to the VGK roster. And like you said, 11 games at the uh, Golden Knights uh, with the Golden Knights, just one assist. What I do like, though, in those 11 games, his plus minus, he was zero. So he's not a defensive liability while he is out there, which, you know, for a young defenseman playing uh, his first games at the NHL level, We'll take that. Um, right now, depending on what happens in the offseason, Miramanov, I believe, slots eighth on the depth chart um, as far as going up to VGK. You have your top six. I would say Dylan Coglin would be number seven, and then Miramanov would be number eight. And I'm okay with that. Um, he's only going to improve. Again, looking at last year, I mean, 40 points at the AHL level. Um, I was actually at the game against Rockford where he notched um, his hat trick, which was a, a ton of fun to see in person. And like you said, fan favorite as well. Um, I like the guy. I think he's going to be able to contribute should an opportunity present itself. Uh, I'm not necessarily drawing comparisons to Charlie McAvoy, but you know, someone like Miramanov does have the ability to put up offensive numbers. You look at what a player like uh, McAvoy did under Bruce Cassidy's system. And what I'm simply saying is defensemen are given 
that rope to rush the puck and take chances under Cassidy's system. So Miramanov could have a chance to, uh, you know, play some games at the NHL level again. And who knows? I mean, the way things are going to shake out, if they, if the team moves on from someone like Alec Martinez, um, now that's, you know, going to slot him up another notch, depending on what else happens. Um, I, I found it interesting. I was just looking at his contract information. His contract actually went down a couple of bucks, um, Basically, season over season, he was 842, and now he's down to 760, but now he also has a two-year contract. So I just kind of wonder how the, the game within the game works. Like, he had a decent season, and McCrimmon pitched him, okay, you're going to make less next year, sign right here. And he says, okay. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just uh, I think he's, little, he earned a little bit, but, you know. Yeah, but a little bit more term. You know, he's got of two more years, obviously, and, you know, he will be a depth piece on the NHL level. And I have to agree with you in that uh, Cassidy likes those rushing defensemen within Cassidy or rushing, rushing and <laughs> rushing. Uh, he likes those type of players from Russia and ones that lead the rush. And we got that straight. But an offensive defenseman, I think, fits in very well if they can develop him again. You know, we always talk about the lack of development from the AHL to the NHL level. Well, here you go. You have an opportunity. One of three Russians on the uh, the roster there with the AHL Henderson Silver Knights. Uh, do you feel, you know, that, uh, you know, he can contribute on the next level? I surely do. I really do believe that Marimanov uh, could be a player uh, that could blossom. I, I do, because when he was up, I thought he showed some good signs. He was pretty good offensive. I think he had one assist, I think, in the Colorado game against the Avalanche. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I like him. I, I just like what he could do. He's got a big upside, and he's got two more years, and hopefully he can prove himself on those couple of years and then land the big contract after this. Yeah, potentially. Um, I think a lot of it depends on if he does play more games at the BGK level, who he is slotting in for. Um, the defensive pairing obviously is key. If he's out there with uh, Shea Theodore for a game or two, Miramanov becomes the defenseman that's going to probably stay at home a little more often. Same token, if um, if he's going out there for Shea Theodore and like Nick Haig is his defensive partner, you're going to see Miramanov definitely carrying the mail a little bit. So I think Cassidy's system is player-friendly in the sense that all the players on the ice will have a chance to contribute um, everyone does have their defined role, of course, and all the lines will be matched up accordingly. But I think, uh, and, and this is probably similar to DeBoer's system, which was a little more open and that all players, you know, DeBoer is an offensive type minded coach. He's not a Barry Trotz by any means. And I, I do think the same as Cassidy. I know Cassidy is a little more of the defensive side, but Cassidy's teams have had no trouble scoring being the Boston Bruins, of course. And again, you know, a lot of stuff does happen from the blue line back and kind of work forward. And it would be nice to see what kind of step forward Miramanov has taken. And who knows? I mean, he could be uh, being Miramanov, of course, he could be one of those players that is called upon to take this team to a new level. And what I mean is, there has to be some type of unsung hero or heroes next year that you weren't either expecting that weren't on the roster last year. Um, you know, starting with Perswan, obviously coming up from uh, the Silver Knights. I think he's going to slot right into the VGK roster next year. Can uh, one of the other uh, uh, Silver Knight standouts being 
uh, Cotter, LeCision, Ron Bjergen, players of that nature, can one of those players do it? Or might it just be Miramanov who's going to come in there and contribute and get, you know, 40, 45 games while putting up, you know, 15, 18 points at the NHL level? That would be very big. There's always that balance, Chris, between maybe uh, trying to be too offensive with your defenseman right on the rush. And then, you know, last year I felt that VGK, even though the defenseman had uh, good production scoring, uh, that they pinched too much, that they were too deep into the offensive zone. And thus we saw the uh, odd man rushes going back the other way and the breakaways and all of that. There has to be some sort of balance. And I'm just curious how Cassidy is going to be playing that part of the game because he likes his guys to rush from the blue line. And I just, I, that's something I'm curious to see and watch. Are they going to be too deep into the offensive zone? Going back uh, when DeBoer first uh, came with the Golden Knights, I felt that in some of the games, uh, Shea Theodore in uh, the bubble playoffs, I think he was getting caught deep a lot. And even going back, um, Nate Schmidt uh, in his couple seasons in, in Vegas, Nate Schmidt really had a poor uh, season two playoff against uh, the Sharks, from what I recall, just kind of getting caught deep and stuff like that. So you got to be careful with that. You're not going to you know, put the all out uh, blitz on, you know, like, uh, like in Madden, and then you hope you get to the quarterback before the quarterback throws the ball. Um, I think a lot of that's going to depend on the team they're playing against as well, how the other team likes to rush. And this is where I hope Cassidy is simply a better coach and uh, better at game planning, game managing, understanding what the other coach is going to do, because I really don't feel like DeBoer, DeBoer's system was on a per team basis. It didn't, whether they were playing the Ducks, the Sharks, you know, the Avalanche. It was it, the it same really, system. It, it was it, the same it, stinking it, system. Is that, that, that was it. It was predictable. It was hundred percent, right? A hundred thousand percent. It was very predictable. It didn't seem different. Now going back to the Gallant days, it did seem different. Uh, it felt, it seemed like depending on the team we were playing, if they were more of a defensive type trap team, they would just get to get the puck to the corner and uh, go from there. If it was a team that didn't play that trap style, that basically allowed you to make that entry, they found a way to make a good pass across the blue line and then begin their cycle or whatever whatever they needed to do to get the puck to the nets. So can Cassidy make? <clears throat> pardon me. Can Cassidy make those adjustments? Um, a knock on Cassidy immediately is he does not know the West. He does not know the Pacific, specifically speaking. That was a plus for DeBoer, and probably why DeBoer was the first choice when VGK moved on from Gallant. No one's going to know the Pacific better than uh, Pete DeBoer uh, as far as what was on the market at that time. So on top of Cassidy having to learn the Golden Knights, he has to learn the, the entire Western Conference. He's only seen each, He's only seen each Western Conference team twice per season. So... Are the styles of play that much different? Not necessarily, but just the tendencies, the the players, the way the players react, how the coaches adjust. So Cassidy's got his work cut out for him, and I'm sure he's shacked up at a city national listening to our show right now. And he's like, you know, this is a good idea, guys. I'm definitely going to get right on this. I think he's back in the Cape. I think he's at Cape Cod there, probably enjoying some time with his family right now. <laughs> Coming up next, we've got controversy in the Stanley Cup final game number four. We'll talk all about it when we return right here on Locked On Golden Knights. 
Welcome back to Locked On Golden Knights. Tony Cardasco and Chris Golick. We come to you each and every day from Las Vegas. Thanks for making Locked On Golden Knights your first listen. It is free and available wherever you get your podcast. And uh uh-oh, the big controversy last night as we see the Colorado Avalanche go up three games to one in the Stanley Cup Final Series by virtue of their OT win, three to two on the Nazim Kadri uh, goal that was just where everyone froze and the puck went uh, right by Vasilevsky. After the game, John Cooper answered just one question. He fought back tears. He said that it really hurt his team, and he had felt really bad. He said, this one's going to sting because it was taken away from the lightning. Over dramatic, perhaps, there were too many men on the ice for uh, the Colorado Avalanche at the time of the winning goal. But Nate McKinnon, he was there for about, I think they timed it out at four to five seconds extra. Uh, Kadri came in as McKinnon's replacement on the line change. And, hey, you know what? It didn't affect the play. I say play on. And now we have a a big controversy going on on whether or not the game-winning goal was scored with too many Colorado Avalanche players on the ice. Yeah, so that was the one thing I was actually looking up right now, but I think you just uh, hit the nail on the head that Kadri was McKinnon's replacement. So the way too many men works, one of the many ways it works, um, the common the common way to look at it is when the player comes out on the ice, does that player join the play? Whether it's they get the puck, they try and make a defensive play. If the player coming on the ice impacts the play and the other player has not cleared the ice, it's too many men. It is too many men, end of story, that's that. And looking at all the different photos, yeah, there was definitely, although I think Tampa had seven players on the ice if you really want to go deep into it. So I guess we can go tick for tack maybe, but that doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about. There were six players on the ice, and that score sheet coming out showing six players on the ice, oh, my goodness, that's, um, that's you know, that was interesting. The NHL said they conducted their standard, keyword standard, standard interview with the referees and linesmen and they all said no we didn't see it we didn't see it we didn't see it so the positioning you got both officials on the blue line watching Kadri make his entry uh, both linesmen that is so neither one of them are going to be able to necessarily see the sixth player on the ice you have the low official who is watching Kadri enter the offensive zone who most likely unless he catches it kind of in his uh, tunnel vision so to speak you know, off the side of his eye, if he's, he has to see that. So that leaves the back official is the one who has the responsibility of seeing that type of thing. And, you know, that's, that's tough right there. It's tough for that back official to hone in on that when there's basically a breakaway happening. And that back official now has the added responsibility of watching for a player coming in for a late hook or something that might cause a penalty shot. So tough on the officials. My question is, with all the increased video replays that the NHL has done, uh, famously starting with uh, VGK, how now possible major penalties are now reviewed, going back to season two, not a major. Like, too many men on the ice is black and white. There's either six players or greater, or there's five. It is measurable. There is no room for interpretation. There is no room for opinion. There's either six players on the ice or five players on the ice. But for whatever reason, too many men is not a reviewable offense. And that's the problem that I see in all of this, because 
by the letter of the law? I mean, did it impact the play? I mean, Kadri might have jumped a, a little bit sooner, I guess. I, that's a fair way to look at it. Uh, shame on Nathan McKinnon, all that experience and leadership, and he can't get his butt over the board. So, you know, you don't have to argue about this nonsense because it didn't impact the play at all. Um, but my call would simply to be make too many men something you can review. Yeah, make it might... something that you can review, and that stops everything. Yeah, that might solve it. And uh, there was another play. I think it was – uh, against uh, trots, right, and and Washington, where it was maybe karma. Some people said where they had, uh, where Tampa had too many men on the ice and an important goal in the playoffs, uh, and so people are talking karma now. What I really liked about the Avalanche last night in that overtime period, just the pressure. I mean, they just turned up the heat. It was incredible from the Logan O'Connor breakaway that was stoned by Vasilevsky. Uh, to the uh, Tays shot that hits the post, to Bo Byram hitting the crossbar. And then finally they break through. Nazim Kadri, uh, most deserving, I felt, by scoring uh, the game winner. And it was just one of those plays where, okay, so we have a premature goal horn, and then we don't have a goal <laughs> horn at all when the puck clearly went, uh, you know, up into the upper tier of the net and got stuck. And everyone just froze. And it was it was pretty wild, just the uh, the end of the game. And I watched the replay, too. And Kadri is skating off the ice. He scores the goal. Nonchalantly, he's skating off. And no one reacted to him. He was like Jim Valvano looking for someone to hug, I think, at the end of the game. So that was pretty crazy. Uh, but it was good, you know, I think, uh, for him to break through. Uh, special teams, again, this has been the major difference in this series. Six power play goals for Colorado, one shorthanded goal. That has been the difference in uh, this entire series. Darcy Kemper, uh, you know, the way to beat Kemper is to hit him in the mask. They did so three times. They had one, <laughs> they had one goal there on the night. So, no, a pretty interesting game with all the drama. And now it's a three-to-one series as they head back to Colorado. It, are, are you still believing in the lightning, Chris? Not as much as I was. Um, you know, if someone is capable, it, it still is the lightning. I'll, I'll bang that drum. I mean, just go and look at the series. We've had four games. You've had two blowouts, two overtime games. This series could be 2-2. It could be 3-1 either team, just the way everything is played out. And Colorado is amazing. Colorado is an absolute machine that Tampa almost was able to control you know, two overtime games. I mean, those could have gone either way. I am not going to take anything away. I'm not going to take away from Tampa either, to be fair. But, you know, I'm not taking anything away from Colorado. They are a friggin' machine. And that's uh, what I'll take to my grave about uh, the 21-22 season when I think back to the, the avalanche. And going to the overtime, I, I was on the ice uh, skating right as overtime started. And during whistles or maybe uh, a couple of times during play, I'd glance up uh, at McKenzie River and catch the game a little bit. And I can't see exactly what's happening from that far, but you can tell what side of the ice the play is on. And every time I looked up, it was in the Tampa zone. Uh, Colorado just was remarkable at keeping that pressure going. I thought Tampa was not the better team as much as they were in game one and game three, but Tampa did have some moments where they were the better team. They got a week one by Kemper being a headman's backhand goal. Um, going back to the comments about the mask coming off, definitely a credit to the referees there for 
understanding the rule book and the situation. Um, Kemper takes that shot off the helmet. Immediately, the puck is swept in the back of the net. I thought uh, ESPN ABC gave a real good explanation of uh, why that goal was allowed. Basically, if a scoring chance is uh, what was not immediate wasn't the word, but um, intimate, whatever the word was that they used, I'm probably saying it wrong. But if there is an active scoring chance and the helmet comes off, you play on. So good job by the refs to uh, swallow that whistle. And no one really argued it. Uh, McKinnon was on the ice. You saw him kind of look over at the referee. And um, uh, the goal, uh, Kemper, he wasn't even upset by it. Like, he was upset he let up a goal. But you didn't see him look at the referee immediately and start yelling. So just so much happening in the game yesterday. The refs get a huge call right. But then we're left talking about the sixth man, the sixth man on the ice when the goal is scored. John Cooper having a, that tough press conference at the end there. And I mean, John Cooper, he's calculated as well. There could be a reason he's doing that. Maybe he feels that's how he's going to motiv- motivate his team. I don't know, but we got drama going to game five and, you know, Tampa is going to have to dig extremely deep. They're going into a hostile environment where the Stanley cup will be there sometime Friday morning. You're going to see the quote from uh, the Stanley cups, Twitter handle. that says I'm in the building. And that's pretty intimidating when you see that. That's that's pretty uh, the gravity of that quote just by itself, just knowing the Stanley Cup is in the building. Uh, that put, puts a lot of pressure on both teams. We do have to give kudos to Darcy Kemper, right? Because uh, he comes back from a, a really bad performance mm-hmm. where he lets up five goals, I think, on 22 shots. I think it mm-hmm. was something like that, right? In uh, game number three, comes back. And even yesterday, I was watching uh, ESPN and I saw Barry Melrose on there saying that Kemper looked awful in the morning skate and in practice. So they were like, Francouz is, uh, Francouz is definitely going to be uh, the starting goalie last night. And that was not the case. And so a little bit of a redemption tour for Darcy Kemper. Now I'm going to pose this question to you. Will the Colorado Avalanche be considered one of the all-time great hockey teams if they close out this series on Friday night? They will be 16-4 and four in the playoffs and that is unbelievable. What a run for your Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 16 and four, that, that's remarkable. Uh, that is absolutely remarkable. And one thing I want to make a point in my last discussion, but I got sidetracked and everything else. So going back to that Kadri goal, uh, remember, I'm formerly, I'm not formerly a Blackhawks fan, but I'm from Chicago, was a huge Blackhawks supporter. Still am. Vegas is my number one love, obviously. But at 2010, when the Hawks won their first of three cups in the recent era, uh, Patrick Kane gets the overtime goal. He just makes a quick little move and slides under uh, Michael Layton's leg. That was like their fourth goaltender on the depth chart, but slides it right under Michael Layton's leg. Kane was the only person who knew that went in. So, folks, check that out. That was uh, that was pretty remarkable in a Stanley Cup moment when there's only one player on the ice that knows it's a goal. So that was very strange. The Kadri goal, when you watch it right away, after you saw the second replay, you saw it was a, it was just sitting in the top shelf there. Um, back to Colorado, will they be one of the all-time great teams if, again, if, if they do win the Cup? 16-4, and four, that's remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. Give them every bit of credit that they have earned. They beat a lot of tough teams and, you know, potentially – the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. We're not going to crown them yet. You know, we, they are, we're not going to say we, they are who, who we thought they were either, but we're not going to crown them yet. They still got to uh, get one more. They, they can't let them off the hook. Now we're talking about, of course, good old Dennis Green from uh, 
against the Chicago Bears on an infamous Monday night game a few, uh, probably two decades ago. Now it's been that long. Um, but yeah, Colorado's amazing. Uh, Jared Bettner, he's really coming out as a world-class coach, able to lead a world-class roster and do it without necessarily having a world-class goalie. But I don't think you necessarily need a world-class goalie back there. Uh, they don't have to rely on Kemper to steal a game to win the Stanley Cup now. They just got to take care of business. And, you know, if they do, good for them. Um, you know, just as a hockey fan, I'm kind of getting a little sad right now, knowing that there might only be one game left of hockey until, uh, you know, 22-23. And that makes me sad. So hopefully let's, let's get this thing at least to game six and the possibility of game seven to, uh, you know, get the goosebumps going. Yeah, and uh, I saw someone, uh, an Islanders fan, showing uh, the ice last year. You know, we're talking about too many men on the ice. In the playoffs, Tampa scored in the conference finals against the Islanders with seven skaters on the ice. So maybe John Cooper is just being a little <laughs> bit too dramatic. Fans we'll never forget. Yeah, never forget. Fans do not forget. And they do have uh, a lot of photos and graphics to uh, to back up their claims as well. Uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. We'll be talking. We'll preview that game tomorrow night uh, as uh, we'll see. Perhaps the Colorado Avalanche can put away, close out the series against the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. We thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for making Lockdown Golden Knights your first listen every day. And for your second listen, it's Lockdown NHL. Get all the latest news from the Stanley Cup final and season right now as the season is starting to come to an end. Stop sobbing over there, Chris. For my man, <laughs> Chris Golick, I'm Tony Cardasco. So long from Las Vegas. We'll be back again tomorrow right here on Lockdown Golden Knights.